0: Hello. Good to see you this weekend. Ephesians is this letter of revelation. That's what you've been seeing in the logos and the branding, all these things revealed. And this weekend is unity revealed. I love the fact that a fair portion of the New Testament is letters this is a day when you don't get many of those. Almost all the letters you get are either either email letters or junk mail or requests for money, stuff like that. I love snail mail. I love to get a letter that you open it up and there's actual handwriting on the letter. And, and here was a letter written almost 2,000 years ago to a church in Turkey called Ephesus. Ephesus is still there. And it's a it's a snail mail letter. It's actually transcribed. Somebody probably carried it. And it's quite possible, according to scholars, that the two letters, one to Ephesus and the other to Colossae, these two towns, were written around the same time, sort of twin letters. Many scholars think that this letter to the Ephesians was like the, the big one, even though Romans is a big letter that, that Paul wrote. This is a big one. And this letter builds a case for the glory and the power of God at work in us both individually and together. And when I when I look at this, I'm impressed because you you've already heard the first 3 chapters of the letter. Now, again, the letter wasn't in chapters when it was written. It was just a letter. We've come along, we've added, you know, verse designations and chapters saying, well, this talks about that and this talks about the other. But the first half of this letter is Paul writing about the glory of God and all the things he's done. And, and we've sung about it this weekend already. But it, it talks about the power and his majesty and, and how he did this for these purposes so that we could be one and all together in him. And he comes to this place and the, not the tone of the letter, but the thrust of the letter changes. So this is how it reads. This is Ephesians the third chapter, I'm going to read the last verses of what Pastor Joel talked about last week, okay? I'm going to read that first. This is how Paul ends that part of the letter, Ephesians 3:20 20 to 21. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, now he's already said all these great things. You've already read it. You've heard about it in the weeks previous to this. To him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We have just sung, Jesus is the center. From my heart to the heavenlies, it's all about. And that's what Paul is saying here. And as Pastor Joel said last week, he stacks up the language to him who is able to do all, and he stacks up the verbiage and the words that describe it. And then he comes to this part, and he changes gears. Now, the thing that's interesting about all the good things that he's been saying is that Paul's writing from prison. He's in a jail cell writing this. This is not sitting on some boat out somewhere, you know, sipping or whatever. He's he's in jail when he's writing this, okay? Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, and I'm going to read... All the verses. Here we go. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, hearing, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ a portion. This is why it says, "'When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train "'and gave gifts to men. "'What does he ascended mean except that he also descended "'to the lower earthy regions? "'He who descended is the very one who ascended higher "'than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe.'" It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, to prepare God's people for works of service. In other translations, it says to equip the saints for the work of the mission or the ministry, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, as each part does its work. You say, wow, that's, that's like a lot of reading right there. What's all that about? Well, let's take just a few minutes and talk about what that's all about. As Paul starts this part of the letter, and he calls us to do something. He said, this is what Jesus has done. This is what God is about in the world and in the universe and in eternity. That's what he's done. Now, what's your part? And this is how he starts it. And depending on the translation you read, it says, I urge you therefore, brothers, and so forth. But the word that is used right at the start of that sentence is please. You know, like please and thank you. He doesn't speak out of his office as an apostle with authority saying, do this. He says, I beg you, please, I urge you. He comes at it from the point of persuasion. He's sitting in jail. He can't come to where they are and command them to do something, but he comes at it from a persuasive point of view. Some of you know people who, as we used to say, could sell ice cubes to Eskimos. They, I mean, they're just salespeople. They can persuade you. They can just work on... Well, Paul, from his out of his sacrifice, is persuading them. Not out of his authority. Out of his sacrifice is persuading them. So the question is, how do we live our lives? Because of all this that God has done, how do we respond to that? And the language that is used is that we are called to walk worthy, walk worthy of the calling that you've been called by, that that idea. There are lots of words for walk. There's You can amble, you can shamble, you can march, you can slouch, you can shuffle, you can step out, you can saunter, you can stroll, you can pace, you can stride, you can tramp, you can trape, I mean, we've got a lot of words for walk, but essentially means Okay, that being the case, all of that about Jesus and what he's done, that being the case, how do we conduct our lives? How do we walk it out? The language we use now is, does he or she walk the talk? Okay? To walk after the Lord and to live a life worthy of the Lord suggests living a life based on what the Lord has done for us and in us. The word that's used, the Greek word that's used there, is axios, from which we get axiom, or as my son-in-law told me last night, axiomatic. Axiomatic is this big word that means, is it balanced? This is, all the things, this is all the things that happened so far over here. What balances that out? This is what God does. What do we do? How do we respond? This idea of walking worthy is captured in Paul's urgent request Please. Some years ago, I walked into my parents-in-law's home in Modesto, California. It's in the Central Valley of California. They have grapes and peaches and what they call almonds. It's almonds in the rest of the world, but it's almonds in that (laughs) section of California. And I walked in, and um, we were talking together, and my father-in-law, those of you who have heard me speak before, know that he had a huge influence on my life uh, in my teen years, it, before I knew that he had a daughter, he because he came and spoke at one of these camps, like you just showed on the screen. He came and spoke at one of those, and I'm ten years old. and he And he talked to us like we were people, you know, and and I'm just a little, I'm a, I'm a ten year old guy, and he and he taught us stories about Jesus, and he and he taught us. The books of the Bible to a song. And I've, I've shared this before, but the song goes, Come, let us, Christian, try to tell. Books of the Bible we know so well. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st St. Samuel, 1st St. Kings, Chronicles and Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon and Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, Joel, and Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, and Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, guy Zechariah, Malachi, and Matt. You know that song. And and he just, here here I am, 60-some years later, I never dreamed I'd be singing it in Washington, D.C. I was just at a camp like those guys, sliding on their bellies through the water. You know that deal. But but his relationship with me encouraged me to listen to him. And their relationship with Paul encourages them, I believe, to listen to him when he says, please, please. Anyway, I walked into my father-in-law's house, and he said, Foth, he always called me Foth. He said, Foth, I think I've got this life in Jesus thing figured out. I said, really? What's the deal? He said, well, it's just this. And I'm waiting. He says, please, God. I said, that's it? You've been a pastor for 37 years, and please, God, is the best you've got? Well... Scripture in Hebrews uses that language. It says, if you want to please God, he who trusts God pleases him. And you believe that he is, that's the first thing. And the second thing is that he rewards those who diligently seek him or who follow after him with hot hearts. You know, I'm hearing the worship band encourage you to praise and to follow Jesus. And, so, and, and, and Jesus is saying, yeah, that's right, that's good. That's what I want. If, if you believe I am and you follow me with your whole heart, that pleases me. When you're a parent and your child actually listens to you and you say, do this, and they actually do it, like not four days later, like when they do it, you know, it, it brings pleasure to your heart. So here is, here is the apostle Paul and he's saying, please, please God. He uses please in two different ways. Colossians 1.10 says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. To, to walk worthy of the Lord. You see, you know, you've been at this for a few minutes and you're still like in the first verse. Yes, this is going to take a little while. <laughs> but, the, but the idea is that when we walk worthy of the Lord... We do so with the attitude that we want to please him. And when you want to please him, it's a call to faith. It's a call to walking by trust. When you step out, when you go with a team to Guatemala and you've never done anything like that before, and you have this young man who's the younger man, you know, they talked about Stefan being youth pastor. I think everybody here is a youth pastor because I'm old, you know, so all of you, if you're 53, you're youth here. I just want you to know that tonight. But the but the point is, faith, when you walk in faith, when you walk in trust, what it does is it takes attention off of yourself to Jesus who is the center. I know I can't trust me very far over here. Well, I can trust myself there and there and there. Ruth can trust me here and here and here, but she can't trust me to take out the garbage in a timely way. You know, we all are untrustworthy at certain levels, and we're all trustworthy at certain levels. But what trust does is it takes the attention off of me and puts it on his worth. This passage, walking worthy, means to please him by trusting his worth not mine. We live in a culture that says, well, that person has low self-image or low self-esteem. Our real issue is self-worth, self-value. And Jesus comes along and says, you may be unworthy, but you're not worthless. There's a difference between being unworthy and being worthless. And he comes along and says, let me show you your worth. I'll come from my heaven to your earth to establish your value to show you how valuable you are. But as you walk out your life, you walk it out on the basis of my worth. You walk it out on the basis of what I have done for you because that's where the eternal things happen. Ha- happen. This is not walking worthy of the Lord. It's not seeing what we can get out of God, as someone has well said, but it's what we can do for and through and with him. This idea of doing something with Jesus, walk, sort of conducting our lives with him every day, is a powerful idea. Some years ago, when Richard Halverson was the chaplain of the Senate, the United States Senate, back in the early 90s, I said, how do you, how do you think about Washington, D.C.? He said, I get up every day, and I say, Jesus, what is it you want to do in Washington, D.C. today? Can I come and do that with you? Walking... Worthy of Jesus means that we walk by faith in trusting Him, and it allows His worth to be seen in the world when I seek to please Him in that way. Somebody says, Why are you doing that? Why do you have that ethic? Or why didn't you try to cut corners there? Or why didn't you do that? And you say, Well, it's because of who I'm trying to please. Well, what is it? You got a mother thing going? Is that the, you're trying to please your mom or you don't have your dad's approval or what's that? No. It's because I have this person in my life who has done so much for me, who has paid the whole price, who has shown me what he looks like. And and I want to I'm not trying to live up to that, as someone has well said, but I want to live out of that. Because of that, this is how I want to respond. Walk worthy of the calling to which you are called. This is not a calling like a vocation. This is not I'm called to be a carpenter or called to be an architect or called to be a pastor or called. It's not that kind of calling. It's the original summons to come to the kingdom. It's more like if you got an invitation from the White House or you got a summons from the Justice Department, show up at such and such a time. It's that kind of calling. Here is the creator of the universe who has said, I have done all of this for you on your behalf. I want you to come over and stand in it. I want you to come over and be here. You're over in darkness. I summon you to come into the light. That's what I want you to do. Come over here. Be with me here. Jesus is the center. I call you from darkness to light. I call you from alone to together, from strife to peace, from meaninglessness to meaning. That's what I'm calling. I'm calling you to come live in a different place. Come live in a different country. Be citizens of a different land. Recently, I was in Amsterdam and in Paris for a few days, and there's always that moment when you walk up to passport control. Many of you know this. You walk up, and you give them that thing, and they put it in the, in the scanner or whatever they do, and you're thinking, boy, don't let them find anything, you know, whatever it is. But, <laughs> but, but there's something profound about putting down your passport and saying, I'm just visiting here. I'm just visiting I really am a citizen of this place over here. There's this phrase that says we are aliens and strangers in the land in Scripture. We're just passing through. There's an old gospel song that says this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. And here is the God who comes along and shows, let me show you the big house. Let me show you the place for which you are designed. And when you understand this, you will bless the country you're in now. You'll bless the place you are now. That's who he is. He says, come over here and be with me. When I come and be with him, I get to live vicariously. Vicarious is a big word that means I don't have much glory of my own. He's got it all. But when I hang with him, you know, people think I'm sunny. I used to... I used to go to the Pentagon some and and visit the head of the Navy, who was a friend. I knew him from before he was head of the Navy. And I used to go visit him. And um, when I'd come out, oftentimes there would be two and three star generals and admirals outside the office. And when I walked out with the admiral, they would stand. Now, they were standing for the admiral, but I'm like close, you know. (laughs) And And they'd look at me, and they have no idea who I am. And I just nod, you know. They say, sir, you know, like that. Or, or once I took him back to the Navy yard, just down the street here. I, I took him back to the Navy yard, and we drive in because he used to live there. That's where the head of the Navy lives. And there's a young Marine guard in dress uniform. And he snaps to attention and gives the admiral salute. He salutes him, and I drop him off. And when I circle back around, I come out. That same Marine guard snapped to attention and saluted me because he doesn't know who I am. I know who I am. I'm a friend of the admirals. That's what I am. He saluted me, and I gave him one of those, you know. The the extent of my military service is one semester of Air Force ROTC at Cal Berkeley. I mean, that's not even like military, you know. I. But, but when you are with him, there's such power in that. And I I have a friend who came here after I'd been here a year, and, and he became a senator. He was a senator, and we'd go to the Capitol, and you know how it is. You walk into the Capitol, you have to go through the magnetometers, and they'd take the stuff out of your pockets. But when I was with him, we'd just skirt, we'd go around that. And he'd just look and say, He's with me. And I'd say, I'm with him. And a couple years into that, he was going someplace with me. We were flying someplace, and I I had I had a status on a particular airline because I'd flown quite a bit. And we go up to go on board early, and he doesn't have that status. He's just a senator. He doesn't have that like big airline status like I had with all those miles. And as we got up there, I just said to her, "He's with me." I love that moment. I just wanted to toss that in there. So the question is, how do you, when you're in him, how do you walk worthy? How do you conduct your life? What does that look like? And Paul goes on to describe it. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Now, I'm liking that walking worthy. I'm in Jesus. Jesus is the son. I'm liking that. And then he has to go and put this in. Like, be humble. And patient, I'm saying, oh, for Pete's sake. You know, why do he say be dramatic or have a heart for mission or why does he go there? Be humble and gentle. Being humble simply means knowing who you are. Don't think too little of yourself. Don't think too much of yourself. Get an accurate view. But that patient part, I mean, that hardly ever works in Washington, D.C. I, you know, I, I'm driving along, coming across the 14th Street Bridge, and I put on my blinker so that I can move over to the next lane, and the guy over there sees that and speeds up. Have you, have you noticed that? So now I, I know it's not good, but I don't do, I just go, bam. I don't, I don't put the... I won't, I won't ask for a show of hands. I was with a friend. I was with a friend up in Boston, and we're driving along 70 miles an hour, and he changes lanes, bam, without signaling. And I said, Barry, what are you doing? You're supposed to put the blinker on, the, you know. And he said, what, and give information to the enemy? Yeah. Why would Paul go with humility, humbleness? It says great humbleness and patience, and bearing with one, one another in love. How, why would he go there? Because the goal is unity. And if I'm always demanding, and if you're never good enough for me because I really have it together, you never become one. You just don't. But he's all about one. One. He's all about bringing us together father son and holy spirit let us make man in our image i mean this is this is about being together and the power of being together is is raw you know but i have i have trouble sometimes being patient we have friends pastors in fort collins colorado and when we left here in in 2008 and i moved out there and became part of a pastoral team I started bringing them. It was a big church, so they have quite a few pastors. I bring them three or four at a time. And one of them said, you know, when you get to D.C., your personality changes. I said, "Real No. I'm the same laid-back, fun guy that, you know. He said, no, no. We got to Dulles Airport. We got our bags, and you turned to me and said, Scott, get your bag and keep up. <laughs> and, then, and then you scared us to death when you were driving. I said, well, you know. But but the point is, the point is that that all of us in places have sharp edges, don't we? We have places where if you walk in there, we we react for whatever reason, and the person who's walking in there, they don't know why I'm reacting like that. And so we need pe- people who are patient with us. We need people who will. There's an old world called old word called long suffering or forbearance, who will bear with us because. The community of Jesus is filled with people who need to be endured. Like some people say, here comes both again. We got to, you know, suck it up. Let's just get through the hour here. You know, we just got to do that because we people are slow to change. Very few people that I know change on a dime like that. It takes time. People have to feel cared for and loved, and they need to know that we're interested in them even when they mess up even when we mess up we'll need to treat them with gentleness there's this very interesting phrase you know the the great commandment the great commandment says love the lord your god with your whole being that's is a fourth paraphrase and the seconds like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these. That is, every all the laws are subsumed under that idea. There's one other place, that's in Matthew the 22nd chapter, and a couple other places in the Gospels. But in Matthew 7:12, there's another phrase, and it says this: Do unto others as you want them to do unto you. We call it the golden rule: Do unto others as you want them to do unto you. And it says, the law is summed up in that. That's the other place it says. The law sort of hangs on that. So we treat each other. We, we encourage unity when we treat others the way we want to be treated. So here we are. We find that Jesus is the center, and he challenges us this way. Through Paul, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all is over us all and through all and in all. The power of one. One heart, one mind, one mission. You know, you feel the one when we sing a lot of times. There's something that happens physically when you sing in your brain. Your brain creates or emits a hormone called, I think it's a hormone, called oxytocin. Nox, ox, not oxycontin, oxytocin. <laughs> oxytocin is the trust hormone that mothers have when they're nursing a child. But when you sing, that happens. So when I'm sitting here or being a part of the worship and you're singing, Jesus is the center from my heart to the heaven, and you sense the swell of the music and there, you sense the oneness in that, you... You say, well, how does that work in the whole church? You know, well, if, if I were to ask you how many churches are there in Washington, D.C., you can go to what used to be called the Yellow Pages, and it's something over 1,400 churches just in D.C. But if I ask Jesus that question, I say, Jesus, how many churches are there in D.C.? He says, uh, one. There's, on, there's like only one church. There are different congregations so when you have 131 churches in servolution out here doing something together, the people out there don't know it's First Baptist and the, you know, Roman Catholic Church and the Pentecostals over there. They don't know that it's the first church of what's happening now. And that that's, you know, they don't know. They don't know. All. all they know is that all these people who have one heart to help them show up. And Jesus cheers because he is about He only has one body, one spirit, one mission. And when you're together, it's attractive. It's magnetic. And he gives people, the Scripture says, to help us. He puts apostles. These are people who sort of have the overarching view, and they travel around, and they encourage folks. You have evangelists. Those are people who really share the good news in a profound way. You've got prophets. You've got pastor-teachers. That's a hyphenated term, pastor teacher. And their purpose is to equip the saints, to equip us. Their purpose is to help us grow together so we can grow up. The unity of the church is that we do this and we do small groups and we're together at this place and that place so we can grow together in the unity of the Spirit so we can be mature so that every new idea that comes along doesn't throw us off track, so that every circumstance that shows up doesn't knock us down. Because when you're together, you're strengthened by all those who are around you. When you're together, the Spirit shows up. I just referenced two points. Second, or Second Chronicles, the fifth chapter, the 11th through 16th verses, tells about the dedication of the new temple back in the Old Testament. And it says that all the priests gathered round and the musicians gathered around and they started praising God 120 trumpeters let alone the people with the harps and all this kind of stuff and it says they were in one voice singing the 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 love of the lord god endures forever and and it was so profound it said that the spirit of god filled the temple in such a way that the that the priests couldn't minister in their do the do their legitimate responsibilities because the presence of God was so strong in the place. It sounds like the day of Pentecost. People there in one place, all together in one accord, and in, in one heart, and the Spirit shows up. And you say, well, does the Spirit show up because they're in one accord, or does it show up so they can be in one accord? And the answer to that is yes. I don't know how all that works. I don't know whether it's chicken and the egg. I don't know how that works. But if my heart is toward being with him, his spirit draws us this way. There's an old saying that two pianos tuned by the same tuning fork are automatically tuned to each other. So when we're looking at Jesus at the center, it automatically moves us toward each other. We're all in different places, but it moves us that way. And if I'm encouraged To not just be all about me, be humble, be gentle, be patient. If I'm encouraged to do that, it allows the spirit to work. When you look at this, it's an echo. Paul is echoing what Jesus said in the last days of his earthly life. In John, the 17th chapter, this is how it reads. My prayer is not for them alone. He had prayed for his disciples, the 12, the 11. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. 2,000 years down the pike, somebody talked to us about who this Jesus is, and we started following him, or we got interested, or that's why we showed up here this weekend. So I pray for, So he prayed for us, like 2,000 years ago, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I'm in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe what, that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. In them, I in them, and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Because of their unity, because they are together, because they have one heart, one song, one mission, if you will, the world will know. Others will know that something's going on there. They will know that they love me and that you have sent me. Paul says it one more time. Please, please, God, by being one. Be humble, patient, gentle, long-suffering. Please, please, God, by being one. When we are in Jesus Christ, that's the goal, to be one. On that day, when the whistle blows or the end of time comes or however that works... And God the Father looks at us, what he sees is not all the junk, not all the fallings down, not all the hassles, not all the things that I might have done better or could have been. He doesn't think when he looks at us, he sees Jesus. Because when we are in him, when we have stepped, when we have responded to his summons to step into him, that's what he sees. We are in Christ. We are forgiven. Redeemed, washed, clothed in in his worthiness, immersed in his grace, called to his mission, filled with his hope, citizens of an eternal kingdom. We are called ones. We are worthy walkers. We are one people. Across the river at the Pentagon, when people do high intensity things, they call them water walkers. Here is the King of the universe who says, Come stand in me. I want you to be worthy walkers. And I want you to be one. And I want to help that happen in your lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the calling, the summoning to you and to your kingdom. Thanks for helping us be citizens of a new place. Thanks for helping us by your spirit work out the places of patience and forbearance and gentleness so that the walls come down and your spirit shows up and the world is blessed. We thank you for what you have done. We stand on tiptoe to see what you want to do next. In Jesus' name, amen.